Good morning. It is so good to look out and see the various colors in the room. Most of the time when I teach or preach, there is a consistent color of blue. Uh, I just want you to know uh, from me the privilege of preaching to inmates. It's a joy. Uh, God has opened this door. It's a privilege to be there. He is bearing fruit in this institution. And I am excited about what God is doing there. If I had known this would be such a joy, I might have done it years ago. I really find there is an opportunity there to share Christ and talk with people about him regularly. I am privileged each week to go to what they call the hole. Uh, that's if you get in some kind of trouble, you're put in an isolation area, and that can be for days or up to six months. And the people there are absolutely starving for human interaction that's not negative. And so the privilege of going there, sharing the gospel, uh, distributing Bibles, praying for inmates, uh, the Lord uses those times, and when they're released from those settings, there's a relationship that's there just from visiting them in the hole. So pray for me. I need it there. So as we come to the Word of God this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 15. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. If you have an electronic device, uh, I'll be looking at John chapter 15. <clears throat> and this morning I'll be preaching out of verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> the theme of the message this morning is abiding in the true vine. As we prepare for the word of God, let's just ask the Lord's blessing even now. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now that you would use your holy word. It would accomplish that for which you've sent it in this day. I pray your blessing on this time as the word is preached. Help me to be faithful to your holy word. Give us ears to hear, I ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. These are the words of Jesus Christ. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's reading of the word of God. Here we see Jesus once again in John's gospel using another I am saying of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think of how privileged we are to have this writing from John. In fact, if you look at John's gospel, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, absolutely unique to John's gospel. In fact, uh, the content in John's gospel is so gloriously complementary to the other gospel accounts that what we see therein is precious jewels that we find that say, without this, we would not have some of this precious teaching. And chapter 13 through 17, of course, are on the evening just prior to Jesus going to Calvary. How precious of the Holy Spirit to have given us through the Holy Spirit the remembrance of these things, even in fulfillment of this scripture that we have just prior, that the Spirit would take what is Jesus and would give it to the apostles so that they could remember the things that he had said. We are now reading and contemplating those very things fulfilled here in our midst as we read John's gospel. Isn't that wonderful? So as Jesus promised, so John has written, so we feast today. I am the vine, not just vine, the true vine. This comes right after chapter 14. I think often we read this passage. I I know in my own case this has been so. And I forget that this is in the context of what Jesus has just said in chapter 14. Uh, Jesus there proclaimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He then promises that he is going to prepare a place for the disciples where they too will go. And he tells them that when he goes away, he will send to them another counselor, another comforter, another helper. One like himself will come. And actually says it's better for them if he goes away. For if he does, the one who's been with them will be in them. And then he begins to talk about this ministry of the Holy Spirit who will come as a part of Jesus' ascension into heaven. It's in this context that we roll into chapter 15 where Jesus talks about abiding in the power that comes from Jesus Christ. Even though the Holy Spirit may not be explicitly mentioned, he just was. 
In fact, that's exactly where John ends 14 going into 15. You can never understand the life that throws, flows from the vine to the branches that bears the fruit without what Jesus has just said in the previous context. And that's the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, as we look at this text, you could almost say that in Jesus' previous I am saying, he emphasized more of how he is the way. You know the place where I'm going. How will we know? We don't know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So to the Father's house, there's a place, and there's lots of space. And Jesus said he's going to prepare that space and that place for us to come to be also. What a joyous passage. This passage has much more to do with what Jesus said previously in his other I am saying, I am the life. How does he who is the life then come to us and through us to accomplish kingdom purposes? John chapter 15. So as we consider what it means here for Jesus to say, I am the true vine and you are the branches. This image of being the vine in the Old Testament is a very familiar one. It's mentioned many times in the prophetic literature and almost to the letter, every time that's done, first of all, it refers to the people of God. And secondly, it's a rebuke. God called you to do something as his vine. He placed you in a fruitful land. And then the prophetic rebuke is this. You have not borne fruit. God is going to judge you because as his vine, his special people who were to bear fruit, uh, you have failed to do so. And the prophets rebuke almost unanimously when the vine image is used, that the people of God failed to fulfill their mission. What's unique here in Jesus saying, I am the true vine, we see some of what Jesus does elsewhere in Scripture, where Jesus not only fulfills what it means to be God, but he also fulfills what it means to be the people of God. Jesus, as he fulfills the temple imagery, in himself he is the temple. And then we individually become dwellings of God that are called the temple, and also corporately we are the temple, by extension of him who is the temple. Jesus also fulfills the people of God. We see this in Isaiah's prophecies about the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord in the servant songs more often speaks of Israel than it does of the individual servant. Corporately, he's speaking about the failures of Israel as the servant of the Lord, but the answer key is given in the representative servant who will come. The servant who represents the people of God, who redeems them who lays down his life for them, who substitutes for them, who brings the people of God into what they should have been all along. You see, Jesus comes as a representative figure. He is the second Adam. He also represents us as the people of God. You see, we have failed as the people of God. We needed one who would come and succeed where we have failed. 
We see this image in the book of Matthew. Think of Matthew in the way he portrays the early part of Jesus' life. Jesus is taken down into Egypt. And then he says, to fulfill the scripture, out of Egypt have I called my son. Jesus performs another exodus in coming up out of Egypt. He, as they pass through the waters, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. And what does he say to John when John says, I should be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. Let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Where does he go after he's passed through the waters? Into the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness when he's tempted by the devil? Instead of failing as the nation had, he succeeds by relying on the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Where Israel had not obeyed the word of God in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds. And then where do we go from Matthew 5 through 7? Jesus goes up on a high mount. And there he proclaims the word of the Lord. Uh, this is a replay of Israel's history. In Jesus' perfect life, as he, as it were, succeeds every place Israel failed. Jesus is the true vine. He is the vine that being united to him brings you into the community of God's people. Because he already has done everything to fulfill what is necessary to be God's people. By coming to us, who best to bring us into union with what God is doing than God the Son in our flesh? I am the true vine, and you are the branches. It's not utterly foreign for God to take an image about the people of God and show how Jesus not only fulfills specific prophecies, but all of the types and shadows of the Old Testament find their yes and amen in Christ. Uh, the Bible is such a rich and multifaceted book. It is delightful to watch the Spirit of God unfold the glories that are in the pages of Holy Scripture that you see every prophet, priest, king type, Jesus. Every temple type, Jesus. The people of God, Jesus. You see, he brings all of them to God's amen. And then by faith, we are united to him who is the fulfillment, the superlative revelation of God. I'll probably get excited when I preach. I'm just this way, so just hang with me. <laughs> How can you talk about Christ without having some zeal for the Lord of glory? The true vine has come. Where every other vine of the Lord failed, he succeeded. Where we faltered as the people of God, Jesus, our representative, stands before the Father at his right hand, clothed in glory. Amen. He's the amen of God. Well spoken, fully done in all things. He is the true vine. Here he is on the night prior to the cross, 
Judas has already left the room. So Jesus is with the 11. And he's talking to them about the necessity of abiding in him to enjoy the vital life of God. As we see what's happening in 15, let us never forget the Spirit of God in chapter 14 rolls right into these themes of enjoying the life that comes from Jesus. Notice the distinction also in the text between branches or what I would call castaway branches. The Father here is at work in this text as the vine dresser. The text is just literally the gardener. So in the context dealing with the vine, this would be the vine dresser. What we're looking at in the context is the father is superintending over what is happening in relation to those who are either united vitally to Jesus Christ or around Jesus Christ who are to be removed. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. Notice there not only are branches, but there are also others who are taken away in the same context. And it must challenge us to look at the text and say, uh, how do we evaluate this part of the text? It reminds me of another text that came out of the same book in John chapter 8. Let me read verse 30 to 32 out of this same context. As he, that is Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, if there's ever a verse of Scripture that's misused right there, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I've heard that over and over about any subject. That's utterly not what Jesus is talking about. Notice they're professing faith. Jesus doesn't go on their profession. Notice what he says. If you abide in me, my word, you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, what he's challenging is their profession of belief. John will often show belief that then proves to not be belief. He's doing this because he wrote these things, as he says in chapter 20, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He doesn't want you to think you have belief and not have belief, and so he will show you pseudo-faith to illustrate real faith. Uh, he's a great teacher. What John is seeing here is the master teacher is illustrating in this very context. Notice again, verse 30, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. And Jesus just doesn't say, well, welcome to the kingdom of God. 
He challenges them in this regard. If you abide in my words, this is going to be a test of whether your profession that you've made is legitimate or not. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The reason this is so important is it's not more than 10 to 12 verses later. They are debating with Jesus. And Jesus asked them, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then he identifies them. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Why do I bring that text here in the context of John 15 seems like they're disconnected. Actually, they're very intimately connected. Abiding and remaining and fruit bearing is actually the evidence of whether a real work of grace has taken place or not. It's whether it is of God or it is of the flesh. And they are two utterly different things. And Jesus here clearly identifies that there are those who could be branch-like but don't have life and thus no fruit. See, the key differential here is this. Those who are taken away by the Father, or later on in the text, are taken away and gathered up and then taken to be burned, is that they were fruitless. So what you have is two distinctions here. There's a fruitlessness and there are those that are bearing fruit. The emphasis that Jesus is trying to bring primarily is upon those who bear fruit. But he mentions here in verse 2 and then in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. The context here is again extremely important. For who had been amongst the twelve the whole time and yet was not one of them? You see, the beloved disciple was urged by Peter to find out who Jesus meant when he said someone would betray. And so John leans against Jesus. And ask him, who is it, Lord? It's the one to whom I will pass the sob. And Jesus dips it and passes it to Judas. The text says he takes it and Satan entered him. And Jesus tells him, what you must do, do quickly. The text ends, and he went out, and it was night. The dark one who'd been among them all the time, playing the part, being in the midst, he had the same water that Jesus washed all the other 11 on his feet as well, and yet was called the son of perdition. You see, that, that alone would cause your heart to stir when Jesus said, one among you is going to betray me. 
they probably would have wondered, how could it be? We certainly know these. But Jesus knew who was branch and who was not. And what that shows you is identification is hard here. And so we really need to look and say, what is Jesus saying about what's the character of a branch that abides in me? Because I never want you to be wondering about this issue. Does this apply to me? Because Jesus tells us here what this looks like in our life. And one thing about this is clear. It's not natural. It's absolutely supernatural. Christianity is not natural. It's supernatural. If you belong to the kingdom of God, the Spirit of God has caused you to be born again. You were dead in trespasses and sins, unable to respond to God, and His grace called you from death to life. If you are in the people of God, the same spirit who called you from death to life now resides within you and there is the life of God as Henry Skugel's great little book title, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. You see, this is what makes the difference in a true branch that's in the vine is that the life of God is in the soul of man. The supernatural aspect of Christianity, true Christianity, is this. The Holy Spirit of God has come and awakened and now resides within a person who is a child of the living God. Jesus here is not telling us about abiding so that we can come up with a 12-step program to figure out what that means. No, I say that only halfway tongue-in-cheek. We do that. We do that. This text is so God-centered, so Christ-exalting, so life of God-flowing, and what we can do is we can actually turn it into how can I do the 7, 12, 10 things that make sure that I'm doing the abiding and miss the big picture. There's no life apart from union in Christ. There's no fruit unless the life that comes from Christ by the Holy Spirit flows in and through your life. Jesus is making an astounding statement here. I am the life. You will have no fruit if you don't have the life that comes from me. And the only way that life comes from me is if you are joined to me. It's challenging. This text is very challenging because the other branches were branch-like. This is challenging in the application here for the way in which it is that we do the things that we do. Um, I've, I've earned this bald head and these gray hairs uh, honestly over the years. I, I'm, I just didn't come around the things of God yesterday. And one of the things I have watched through the course of especially 
American evangelicalism is that we have, as it were, absorbed much of how the church around us has done Christianity. And much of that is out of the history of revivalism in our country. And I've experienced it firsthand. I went to a place called Word of Life Bible Institute. Uh, the best thing I got there was my wife, Crystal. She's right back there. She worked there. She had been a student there the year before. So I needed financial aid, and she was the financial aid lady. She knew I had nothing. <laughs> uh, she loved me anyway. <sighs> but one of the things that was bothersome to my young Christian soul as I was studying the Word of God was the method when they would bring in students for snow camp or a camp event because they would physically wear these kids out, just wear them clear out, and then give them a lot of sugary stuff through the course of the evening, and then at the end of the evening, finally get them into a chapel service. And the goal there was to do anything possible to get any kind of response at all to Jesus. And my job, as was assigned, because I was a dorm supervisor, was once somebody made whatever that profession or whatever words it was, they were to bring them to me. And I was told to assure them that they were saved. That just sounds like the flesh to me. Often these young children were brought down to me and couldn't say a word about why they were even there. Now, I want you to know there's a little bit of a rebel in me. I refuse to do the job. So I just preach the gospel to them again. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them what it means to repent and believe in the gospel. Tell them what Jesus had done. Assure them that if they were believing and repenting of their sins, that, that would continue on in their lives. They would be repentant, believing people. Uh, but, but I wouldn't tell them if you stick a sticker in your Bible that you're saved. Folks, not with every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, see, I'm not doing that right now, but we've heard it. Just slip that hand up. Let's slip that hand. Shh. Everybody... Nobody's looking. Slip up that hand. Don't you see how that methodology could teach people that this private slipping up of the hand is actually contrary to Jesus who says, you confess me before men and I'll confess you in public before my Father and the angels. But you see, this, in other words, by, by that mere slipping up, that in other words, saying this, that that by its very nature can give assurance to you that you are right with God. See, the danger is this. We can figure ways to actually manipulate people apart from relying on the life-giving Holy Spirit of God who must do for us what we cannot do. We, we must have his power doing these things. Or, or without him, what does Jesus say? You can do 
Nothing. My old professor, R.C. Sproul, used to say, nothing doesn't mean not a little something. <laughs> uh, I love that guy. Uh, nothing doesn't mean just a little something. It means nothing. Apart from me, you can do no thing. You have to be joined to the power that comes from Jesus alone because fruit only comes if you're joined to the power that comes from Jesus alone. Salvation is in Jesus alone. Power is in Jesus alone. Eternal life is in Jesus alone. This is such a God-exalting, Christ-exalting text. I'm the true vine. If you're joined to me, the life that comes from me bears fruit. And that is what's essential. Being in me, joined to me. You see, we're either people that are joined to Christ and have life, or notice the implication of the text, or we're not. You see, what this does is challenges us as the people of God to say this. Make our calling and election sure means to ask, do I have the life of God in my soul? Has the Spirit of God taken me from what I was to something new? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You see, if there's nothing new, if, if your affections are not somehow altered, if you don't see Jesus as delightful, if you don't love him, you have every legitimate reason to question, have I ever trusted in Christ at all? You see, Jesus scares me in many of the things that he says, nothing more than this, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And then note what they do. They list the things that they did. And they're religious things. You see, it's, it's very sobering to realize that religious things can be done in the flesh. Religious things can be done without the life of God and the soul of man. And Jesus doesn't say some or a few. He says, many will say to me on that day. See, they're saying the right words. They're professing Jesus as Lord. And not just Lord, Lord, Lord. I don't know about you. I think today if, two, if somebody said Lord, Lord twice, we'd probably have a revival right there. Uh, we'd call the newspaper. Look, this is it. You see, Jesus is sobering us up in this regard. There's going to be many on the last day that will be terribly surprised. Many who thought they were Christ's people who are not Christ's people. Now, I, I want you to hear me here because I'm really trying to challenge from the Word of God, but in this regard, the people of God quake at the warnings of God. It's one of the confirmations that the Spirit of God actually is in your soul because what you'll find yourself even now saying is, oh, Lord, may it never be. 
And if that response is yours, you should take some good heart in that, that the Lord is probably the one working in your heart, causing you to say, may that never be the case. Oh, God, no. You see, but if you can hear that challenge and not be stirred to the core of your being, then what it does should challenge you to say, oh, Lord, uh, let me never get peace until I know I have trusted truly in the Lord Jesus Christ. This massively Christ-centered, Christ-saturated text can actually become something in which we focus on what it means to abide rightly. I don't know about you, but I have heard entire series. People write books on what it means to abide properly. And, and what I find a bit humorous, even though not completely, it's not humorous, it's kind of sad, is that the abiding is necessary for the fruit to be there. That means you've got to have life coming from Christ because there's no fruit without being united to Christ. And what we end up doing is making notice things that are fruit-oriented, and we put those back in what it means to be abiding. Rather than you need Christ, and out of him, there comes fruit. Boy, we, we get this so twisted in our minds. I think one of the reasons that happens so often is that by nature, our sinfulness will actually turn almost anything into a work. We could turn the gospel into a work. We could turn abiding into Christ into a work, <laughs> and then try to determine how well we're fulfilling our works so that God might be gracious to us and work through our lives and bring fruit. Rather than this, I desperately need the vine. His name is Jesus. I need Jesus. The power that can only come to make a difference, not only in my life, but in the life of anybody else, it's got to come from Jesus. Uh, this is a Jesus-centered text. It has to do with what he does. It has to do with the power that flows out of him. It has to do with the fruit that Jesus produces. It's all about what Christ is doing. And we can turn what Christ is doing into a 12-step program just like that. I urge you to hear Jesus' words. I am the true vine. You are the branches. You know what you contribute to the vine? Come on here. Nothing! <laughs> you know who's taking care of you? The Father. He's pruning things off so that you're more effectively fruitful than you would have been before. But the branches aren't helping out the vine. We desperately need the vine to give us the life and the fruit that comes only from the vine. Uh, the whole Bible is so Jesus-centric. And we need to read it always asking this, how can I make much of Jesus Christ because this text is screaming, Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. Jesus is the one who makes you fruitful. If you bear any fruit for eternity at all, it's going to be because his life flowed through you. 
on the last day, you're not going to be standing up saying, check out my branchiness. But we will say much like this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy. Worthy is the source of life. Worthy is he who laid down his life so that my deadness may be brought to life, that I may join to him, that fruit may come out of this life that formerly was dead in trespasses and sins. Worthy, worthy is the lamb. You see, God wants us to be Christ-centered in our thoughts, our affections, our hearts. And he also wants us to never assume on this, you didn't save yourself at all. If you're saved today, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. He is the vine. Uh, we just get the privilege of being joined to him. And his life flows through us, and uniquely, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, even the good works that he wants us to do, he's preordained that we would do them. It's all of grace, and it's all from Christ to Jesus Christ be glory. Absolutely nothing is accomplished apart from him, but in Christ Jesus, much fruit. I'm encouraged by this part, and then I'll bring us to the time we get ready for the Lord's table. Jesus said, it is my Father's will that you bear much fruit. Boy, that should encourage us. Think about Jesus who had walked with these men for three years and over and over were told in the text that they didn't understand what he said. <laughs> I don't know if any of you teachers here in the room, but listen, after three years, or you just poured out your heart and soul, every bit of information that you could get with all the, I mean, Jesus is teaching here. And they did not understand what he said. Jesus is on the brink of Calvary. And he has pulled them aside over and over as he's preparing this way and has told them exactly what's going to happen when he gets there. You know what they were doing when they come to the upper room? They were arguing amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest. Is it any wonder that no one would wash somebody else's feet? They missed it. They weren't seeing it. Oh, what made the difference? The next day, Jesus laid down his life on Calvary and paid it all. He rose from the dead. He appeared for 40 days instructing the disciples about himself. And then he ascended into heaven. And then the promise that he gave right here came.
it's better for you if I go away. The life now that flows from the vine now has gone out to the church through ages and continuing to awaken sinners from their death and unite them to Christ because the vine has life flowing from his throne all over this world. How can he say, go into all the world, make disciples, because his power will extend through all of the world. See, we preach even today in the assurance of this, Jesus is still doing that reviving, enlivening work even now through the word of God. Let me challenge you. Make your calling and election sure. And one of the ways that you need to be challenged about this is this. Is Christianity to me just a series of facts and figures? If I would take a multiple choice test and get 80% on the box, is that what it means to be a Christian? I can guarantee you, first of all, the answer is that's no, because I was a preacher's kid. And I could have passed that test. And I was lost. Utterly lost. I could fool you well, but I was lost. And God didn't save me until I was 22 years old. And when he did, the blinders came off. And the life of God came into my soul. And Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Did I get smarter? No. I didn't answer more questions on the test right. The living God changed my life. And see, what we need to realize is that's what makes a person belong to the vine. It's the life of God in the soul of man. If there's any message I think we need, not only here, but in our broad world, it's what it is that defines a Christian. A repentant, believing person is a Christian. My dad would say it this way. Are you repenting and believing in Jesus? And someone would say yes. He says, well, that's good. Just keep right on doing that. He wouldn't say, well, you're certainly going to heaven. You know why? I don't know, and you don't know if that's so. But if that person does keep repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, what's happening is this. There's the evidence of what Christianity rests in. I repent of my sins, and I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm leaning on him. I'm turning from sin. I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just how you get into the Christian life. It is the Christian life. You see, it evidences whether or not you're in the vine. If you're a branch that's bearing fruit, one of the things that fruit will always look like this. Father, I repent of my sins. And I trust in Jesus Christ. His death for my sins, my only hope. The one who's seated at the right hand of the Father, my Lord and my God, I worship him. I pray that God will help us even today to realize what it means to say Jesus is the true vine. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No man comes to the Father except 
by him.